Hello and welcome to Stick Together, Australia's only national radio show all about workers' rights and social justice. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast to you around the country on Community Radio Network. I'm Dennis Rogatyuk. For the past three months, I've been absent from Stick Together due to my travels in Latin America. I visited Ecuador, Chile and Bolivia. I shall briefly discuss the state of social movements and the fight for socialism of the 21st century in each of those countries on today's program. But first, we'll have a look at what's been happening lately within the Australian industrial scene. Just this Monday, March 14th, in Victoria, we celebrated Labor Day and the 160th anniversary of the introduction of the 8-hour working day in the country. 160 years ago, the stonemasons, led by James Stevens, walked off the construction sites at the University of Melbourne, marched to Belvedere Hotel in Fitzroy, and held a mass gathering and festival for the workers there. The united power of the workers forced the employees to agree to the implementation of the 8-hour working day without loss of pay. It became the first workers' movement in the world to introduce the 8-hour working day. Now today, the 8-hour working day, or a 40-hour working week, seems to be increasingly becoming a luxury for more than 40% of the Australian workforce that has been forced onto insecure jobs and labour hire contracts. For the majority of workers, even having a permanent and secure job has become the most desired attribute, even if, we're, if they have to work for up to 60 or 70 hours a week, and some of them do. No other case illustrates this better than the status of immigrant workers within the agricultural industry, where $9 an hour wage rates, 20-hour workdays, and an almost complete absence of any working rights have become the daily reality. But this is not that different from what the stonemasons and other workers had to face back in the middle of the 19th century. So can the radical spirit of 1856 be reclaimed and revigorated into a new movement for secure, well-paying labor with decent working conditions? Is it time to start rallying behind the idea of a six-hour day and a 30-hour week without a loss of pay? Joining us now is one of our shows a regular guest, the Assistant General Branch Secretary Godfrey Morse of the National Union of Workers. Godfrey, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks, Dennis. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Now, Godfrey, this just this passing Monday was Labor Day, the 160th anniversary since stonemasons first fought for an eight-hour day and the measure and the measure to recognize their labor. Now, today with so much insecure work and uh, working hours becoming increasingly unstable. Do you think the triple eight, the eight-hour work, eight-hour rest, eight-hour recreation is still relevant? I think uh, now more than ever it's relevant. Just in the past few days as we were enjoying the Labor Day weekend celebrating the world first victory of the eight-hour day in Australia in, in Melbourne, uh, we had news that the pace of climate change was accelerating in a quite rapid way. That was shocking climate scientists globally that you know temperatures for for February were, were reaching what we'd expect to see in the year two thousand one hundred. So I think that 
a fight for shorter working hours is important for our future, um, but we can take inspiration in our past. The fight for uh, what I would like to see a 30-hour week is incredibly relevant for our future. Shorter working hours will allow us to fight climate change, will allow us to create more space away from the hectic pace of this economy to build a new Australia. Uh, it's particularly relevant that you mention insecure jobs because I think there can be a perception that insecure work is a new thing in the economy. And while in the context of post-World War II, the rise of insecure work in various forms is new, in the context of the development of Australia, it's not. What we're seeing is a return to pre-World War II working arrangements and to 19th century working arrangements where people had very contingent, insecure work. And the eight-hour movement was one response to that industrial situation where you had some people who were working 10, 12-hour days and some people who weren't in work. And overwork and underemployment and unemployment, they're all connected, they're all related. And Godfrey, you've written extensively um, about um, the the case for a six-hour working day and how that could re-energize labor movements in this country. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Um, well, it's no secret our labor movement was born in the fight for the six uh, for the eight-hour day, and I think it can be reborn in the fight for the six-hour day in the fight for a thirty-hour week. Um, I think that the fight for a 30-hour week is one of those claims which will make us stronger for having that fight and stronger when we win. I think it will make us stronger for having that fight because it will create new linkages and new alliances. The fight for a shorter working hour is the fight for a slower economy, for a more ecologically just economy. The fight for shorter working hours is the fight for younger workers new people coming into the labour market, recent graduates, to have a future, to have jobs. And the fight for a shorter working week is a fight for everybody to be able to live their life. Um, and what will occur, I believe, with a 30-hour week, if we hashtag fight for 30, we can create every isolated enterprise bargain, the narrow box that the Conservatives with across all the major parties have put the union movement in, what what occurs there is that the fight for every enterprise-based bargain becomes a fight that everybody cares about. If we have construction workers in Melbourne who are fighting for a 30-hour week, then graduates with no future at Melbourne University, at RMIT, suddenly they have an interest in the outcome of that construction worker fight because everybody wins out of a 30-hour week, except unless you want to try and maximize the absolute amount of profit you can squeeze from the rest of us. And of course, the fight for a six-hour working day or a 30-hour week is, um, is actually is actually nothing new. In fact, in Sweden, we are already seeing some of the ex in certain um, cities and in certain uh, public service areas, we are, we're already seeing... Um, implementation of the six-hour working day. Yes, yeah. Uh, Gothenburg in, in Sweden, there's a nursing home there that uh, is trialling a 30-hour working week. 
and that comes off the back of the Toyota factory in Gothenburg um, for, I think, over 10 years, um, having a 30-hour working week. And it's really interesting what's happened there. Um, that nursing home, it's, it had originally a one-year trial. It's now extended it to a two-year trial. They had about 60 nurses that they engaged, um, and through shifting to this process, they had to hire an additional 14 nurses. And I think the fight for 30 hours, that little uh, story tells us what opportunities, what new opportunities it can create for people, for young people today coming into the labour market, for people who want to pursue their vocations. The fight for 30 hours not only creates a better life for all of us, but it expands the caring economy. It expands the number of nurses and doctors we need to employ, the number of teachers we need to employ. Um, and that's why a lot of corporations aren't going to like it because we're going to need to tax them more. We're going to need to tax wealth better to make this thing a work initially and create a new equilibrium in our economy. Um, so it's interesting that one trial, it hasn't come cheaply, but critically, and this is what really matters, the residents at that nursing home are reporting um, increased satisfaction with their care, a better experience. And why? Because the workers are happier and the workers are reporting um, increased satisfaction with their job and increased engagement with their job because they've got a chance to get out of the office more. Absolutely. And I guess one other... Um um, reform or one of the important policies that I could really go hand in hand with a six-hour working uh, working day is the universal uh, basic income. So this idea that um, uh, this idea of the of well, essentially, essentially, the government providing money to people just simply simply for being citizens. It's this uh, much more viable, much more progressive alternative to the wealth to, to welfare. Uh, that, we, that we have in our system. Do you, th do you think there the, the could be a good connection between the six-hour working day and the movement for the universal basic income? Yeah, I think they're both related, um, and they're related in this sense. I'm a unionist not because I um, just want everybody to spend all their lives in, in work, in wage labour more specifically, I want to see people being able to work outside of wage labour. I want to see people being able to make more specifically a living uh, without having to prostrate themselves in front of the boss. Um, the universal basic income and the fight for a shorter working week, the fight for a 30-hour week, are connected insofar as a movement to shift us away from just being engaged in wage labour to shift our civilization, our society to beyond wage labour, to more cooperative forms of working relationships that we have with each other. I personally believe that one day we're going to look back on wage labour and look at it in the same way that we look at slavery, that it's just another form of... Um, economic relationship based on hierarchy and based on domination and we deserve better we deserve to have real freedom in our lives the universal basic income and the 30-hour week are connected in that regard 160 years ago on april 21st we had stonemasons walking off the job in melbourne 
for an eight-hour day. That would have seemed pretty utopian 160 years ago. Look at all the massive improvements we've had in productivity. What we've got coming in terms of robotics, automation, 3D printers, um, algorithms uh, with computers, all of that. Surely we can all live secure, modestly prosperous lives working a 30-hour week and everyone having a minimum basic income because we have put the wealth of our society into the commons and out of the hands of the few, out of the hands of big global multinationals like Chevron. That's how they're connected. Universal basic income, shorter working hours, they're all part of a movement to create a new civilization, to create a decent, prosperous future for all of us, where we can give to our children and our great-grandchildren the gift of reaching their full potential, their full development as human beings, because they're not blighted by the need to work a job that they dread every morning, that they don't want to go to, that doesn't develop their talents, that um, infantilizes them, treats them like kids, we have that opportunity to pass that on and I think we need to fight for that so that we can create a new, better future for all of us. Now that certainly sounds incredibly inspiring, Godfrey, but how do you think we can um, convince Australia's labour movement, trade union movement and other social movements that this is the way, the way to go for us? Um, well... If you're a union member, talk to your delegate. Say that I want to see, I want to fight for a shorter working week. I want to fight for a 30-hour week. Talk to your union organiser. Call the union office. If you're not in any form of union, then get on the Unions Australia website, Australian Unions website, and uh, leave a comment. Contact them and say, hey, I want to be part of a fight for a 30-hour week. Make some noise. If you're on social media, use the hashtag fight430. That's fight430. Um, we're in a wonderful period of history where anything is possible, good, bad, in between. So let's make the better possible. If we make enough noise about this, we can do something. We've got May Day coming up. Let's recapture the spirit of 1856 of 1886, because we're also coming up to 130 years anniversary of the Chicago Haymarket Massacre. Let's recapture that original spirit of the labour movement, which was about creating the world anew. Let's recapture that original spirit and create the world anew again. So let's turn out on May 1 and come along, find the demonstration in your nearest city and paint banners, paint signs, and say, you want to create a new future. I want to fight for 30. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Stick Together uh, today, Godfrey. Awesome. That was perfect. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. Stick together. You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. We just heard from one of our regular guests, Godfrey Moores of National Union of Workers, about the radical idea of rallying the labor movement, 
behind the idea of a six-hour working day and a 30-hour week to finally help break free from the twin crises of unemployment and insecure work. Now, as I mentioned earlier, another part of our show today will be dedicated to Latin America. After returning from the continent, I am able to attest to the fact that across the ocean, we are seeing the resurgence of the right-wing forces alongside the attempts by the social movements and the left-wing governments to stop them from seizing, from seizing political power and returning the continent back to the dark years of neoliberalism of the 1970s and the, and the 1980s. We begin first in Argentina, where in November of last year, the neoliberal and the right-wing mayor of Buenos Aires, Mauricio Macri, scored a victory in the presidential elections against the center-left Kirchnerist candidate Daniel Schiori. Cristina Kirchner, the, left, the left-wing president of Argentina from 2007 to 2015, was unable to stand in the elections despite her continuing popularity. What followed the victory of the neoliberal candidate Mauricio Macri follows almost every single neoliberal and free market handybook that you would find in the world. Since assuming assuming presidency of Argentina, Macri has proceeded with firing of over 60,000 public service employees, increasing the electricity prices in the country to between 300 and 500 percent, as well as jailing independent left-wing activists such as Milagro Sala, a well-known Argentinian indigenous activist and the leader of Tupac Katari organization, which is a militant indigenous uh, group in the country. Internationally, Macri has proceeded to build closer, rela- closer relationship with the economic powers who have traditionally been the, oppre- the oppressors of South America, including the United States, United Kingdom, and Israel. Perhaps the most, the most controversial decision by the new neoliberal president was to convene a meeting with the various international vulture funds and finally agree for Argentina to pay back part of the, part of the debt that was written off originally following the 2001 default. And of course, all of this has been combined with new austerity measures such as cutting down on public spending, as well as censorship of some and well-known television channels and journalists such as Victor Hugo Morales. The arrival, or rather the return of neoliberalism to Argentina has also prompted the return of social movements and trade unions to the streets to demand that the conservative government cease implementing austerity and instead work for the benefits of all Argentinians rather than the tiny economic elite and the foreign and the interests of foreign powers such as the United States. To the north of, Argen- of Argentina, in Bolivia, the left-wing and progressive movements have also been faced with a setback. On February, on February 21st, uh, Bolivians voted to decide whether the current sitting indigenous socialist president, Evo Morales, would be allowed to stand for re-election in the tw- in 2020 alongside his vice president Alvaro García Linera. In in the end, the referendum resulted in a very narrow win for the right-wing opposition, 
with 51.1% saying no to the election, while 48.9% said yes. Under the leadership of Evo Morales, Bolivia has been fundamentally transformed from being one of the most impoverished and unequal societies in South America to a plurinational state where the key industries, especially the hydrocarbon ones, have been nationalized and all the, rev- and the revenue been directed towards social, sp- social and public spending on healthcare, education, infrastructure and improving the lives of the, wake- of the working class. Alongside that, the new Bolivian constitution of 2009 has truly come to represent the transformation of the country recognizing Bolivia as the plurinational state and becoming the first country in the world to recognize the rights of nature and the Mother Earth, or Pachamama. Despite such a formidable record, the popular indigenous president still faced the defeat in the referendum poll. So why was that? Three main factors play the key role in that. First has been the beginning of the resurgence of the right-wing opposition in Bolivia following last year's subnational and gubernatorial elections. Last year, uh, in, t- in 2015, the right-wing opposition in Bolivia managed to win 8 out of 10 largest urban centers and districts in Bolivia. At the same time, the movement towards Socialist Party, that is... Uh, the party uh, supporting Evo Morales' government, has won two-thirds of the governorships as well as local councils. At the same time, though, the loss of the urban centers has has helped to revigorate the notoriously divided right-wing opposition in Bolivia, at the same time as demoralizing the social movements and the grassroots movements that supported Evo and the MAS party. Furthermore, private media outlets, which control the vast majority of the com- of the communication in the country, have played a crucial role in the referendum and in supporting the campaign against against Evo. Also, as a notorious Argentinian analyst Atilio Boron has pointed out, the United States continues to interfere into the affairs of the country by continuously financing right-wing NGOs and political parties, either directly through through the embassy of the United States or through partner organizations such as the National Endowment Fund for Democracy. And finally, a vicious social media campaign of lies, racism and false accusations was waged by right-wing political parties in Bolivia as a way of dissuading the the swing and the undecided votes towards the no campaign. In the end, the right-wing opposition scored a narrow victory over Evo Morales and the indigenous social and workers' rights movements in Bolivia. Thus, Evo Morales would be unable to stand as the presidential candidate in 2020, and instead, the revolutionary movement in Bolivia will be forced to pick a new candidate to represent them in the elections. In Ecuador, the government and the indigenous groups are continuing a 20-year-long battle against the oil and gas giant Chevron for the com- for the 9.5 billion dollars of compensation for the environmental destruction 
that the company's subsidiary Texaco has caused between the 1970s and the 1990s. With over 500,000 hectares of rainforest polluted and 30,000 victims living in the affected areas, this has become known as the Amazonian Rainforest Chernobyl. One of the leading groups in the process is the Committee of the Victims of Chevron, whose, uh, ma- whose major leader is Pablo, Pablo Fajardo, a 42-year-old humble lawyer of indigenous Kofan descent, who has been fighting against the multinational corporation for more than a decade now and has become the target of smears and lies put out by the, by the campaign against him against himself and the indigenous victims. And finally, Venezuela and Chile also have not been untouched by the right-wing resurgence across the continent. In Venezuela in particular, the right-wing scored a major victory in last December's National Assembly elections and proceeded to put out an agenda of of austerity and privatization, which the socialist government of Nicolas Maduro has consistently opposed and fought against. The social and grassroots movements of Venezuela and those behind the Bolivarian Revolution will no doubt play a key role in stopping this new wave of right-wing offensive from taking place in Venezuela. So why have I mentioned all of these worrying developments across Latin America? Because for decades, progressive and left-wing governments across the continent has served as a beacon of hope in a world engulfed in in a neoliberal crisis. If that hope is extinguished and neoliberalism fully reclaims the continent, then the fight for the socialism of the 21st century will become much harder for the working class across the world. Yet in order to defeat the right-wing political forces, as well as their backers within the domestic oligarchies, the multinational corporations and foreign imperial powers, we must reactivate and reorganize the organs of working class and social movements right across the continent, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Venezuela, in Bolivia, in in Ecuador. All of the left-wing governments who are currently in power in Latin America have been brought on the backs of mass mass protests, social social movements and workers' uprisings. From factory occupations, cooperatives and the movements of the urban workers in Argentina to the mass mobilizations of the working poor and the insecure workers in Venezuela, to the urban middle classes, the peasants and the indigenous in Ecuador, and of course to the landless peasants movements in Brazil, all the left-wing governments in Latin America do not just owe their existence to social movements, but also their very survival. Either we reconnect, re-energize and re-establish ourselves as the forces of radical change and movement towards socialism of the 21st century, or we will have to start saying farewell to the decades of progress that we have made in that region. On that note, I'd like to conclude today's Stick Together episode. I'd like to once again thank Godfrey Moles for appearing on the show today and talking about the importance of the fight for the 30-hour week. I'd also like to thank the Community Broadcasting Federation for their financial support of the program. And of course, thank you to listening. I hope you tune in same time next week.